Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It's a great pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Pierce Corbin, the owner of a business called Weather Action. This business helps predict both extreme weather and weather from around the world, even a year in advance. Dr. Corbin uses revolutionary techniques to do that, having to do with solar activity and lunar activity, both separately and in conjunction with each other, as part of the whole system's equation of bringing us predictions about climate. He's also said some fascinating things related to climate, one being what's natural is a million-year cycle of an ice age and the warming in between. We're going to learn a lot Ladies and gentlemen, welcome physicist, astrophysicist, meteorologist, and owner of Weather Action, Pierce Corbin. Well, hello, and thanks very much for having me on this program. It's a great honor to be here. It's a great honor to have you, Pierce. You're a mystery man out there in the climate world. You seem to be predicting weather with a very high degree of accuracy. I know that some of how you do it is proprietary, which I understand. Yes. I hope that for the future of humanity with extreme weather that at the end of the day we're not solely dependent on you for this because if anything, God forbid, happens to you, a lot of people who are depending upon your newsletters, your predictions with regard to agriculture are going to lose their crops. So we hope that in the future this becomes more able to be released. Sure, it will be in the public domain in due course, uh um, and in fact, there's you know uh, um, secure places where the information is held. Uh, but um, my intention is to release it all. Um, the difficulty we have uh, is partly that we have to be in a strong enough position to do so, rather than just say things and then have people uh, copy them, or more likely just say it's all impossible because it doesn't fit into the pervading ideology of climate around CO2. I want to start by asking you a question that I heard in another interview that you did. You had made a statement saying, look, what's the norm? Is a million-year ice age and then a period of warming. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yes, yes. If you look at the data for the last million years by examining ice cores, you see that every 100,000 years or so, there's a warm period like we're in now, and they last about 10,000 years. And all the space in between, there's 90,000 years or, or often more, is uh, ice age. So the natural state of the world is ice age, uh, or ice ages separated by short interglacials. And we are in one of them now. And we are near the end of one of them, statistically speaking because we've had about 10,000 years of this one, which is as long as any of them have lasted. Now, before a million or so years ago, or some millions of years ago, then the uh, the whole situation was different, and generally it was a generally warmer world. But um, the situation we're in now is this oscillation with the normal state being ice age. Do you think that most of the people who think about climate have that frame of reference as being that no, large of a no. cycle? The propaganda on the, on the media is that uh, the world has always been something like it is and it's getting warmer. Well, actually, 
the world is mostly being cold, much, much colder for the last million years. And it's uh, also, um, in all the last uh, five interglacials, it's got to warmer than this. In detail of this interglacial, where the last 700 years have been the coldest part of the last 10,000 years, i.e. the last interglacial, and we've had warmer periods before within this generally warm interglacial, i.e. we've had the medieval warm period, the Bronze Age, and so forth. And the Bronze Age, about 5,000 years ago, was, was much warmer than that. You have said in other interviews that this cooling cycle could go as late as 2030 or 2035. I don't know which one it was. Which yes, one are you it, saying? Well, we think, uh, we, well, we are in a general cooling trend now, which is more or less admitted even by the people that produce fraudulent data. They're not arguing that the world is, is warming unless they're just telling lies. Um, the the what happens if you compare solar activity in the past with with um, well basically if you look about go through ten magnetic cycles of the sun about two hundred and twenty years or so then um, the solar activity kind of repeats it's not exact but it does kind of repeat now if you use that as a comparison then that means that. Uh, what happened uh, 220 or so years ago is going to pretty well repeat with solar activity, which and that means we're going to have a big decline in solar activity, uh, which in a smoothed out sense uh, over some decades means you will also get a generally cooler world, and that is uh, statistically very reliable. It doesn't hold in detail, but it, it holds for like two decades. At least one magnetic cycle of the sun you can say, or give a good average temperature. So we're heading for uh, a general decline in world temperatures and reaching a minimum around uh, 2035. So how do we receive what you're sharing with us? And of course, Dr. Don Easterbrook also said something similar in terms mm -hmm. of the cooling going on. I did an interview with him many months yep. ago. A great many of us have ingested misinformation about climate, and therefore yes. a great many of us are going to be preparing for warming when it's cooling. So what do people in agriculture do? Well, they should ignore what their governments tell them and uh, prepare for longer winters like you've been having in, in, in America. Um, uh, generally speaking, shorter summers. Although the big extremes recently, we we'll, we'll talk about those separately. But generally speaking, that's what's going to happen in both hemispheres. There'll be longer winters and shorter summers. Um, and this trend will continue. And uh, that is contrary to all the claims of the global warmers. If you recall, they said we would see the end of snow by the end of this decade in America and, and Britain and most of Europe or most of America and uh, and that, um, well, we just have baking summers all the time. Now, of course, uh, that hasn't actually been the case. The, the, the prognoses have been uh, shown to be false, and the world has actually cooled when they said it would warm up due to CO2. CO2 has come up, but not the temperatures. And I do want to talk about CO2 for a couple of minutes with you. 
because CO2 a couple of years ago was deemed by the EPA to be a toxic pollutant. <laughs> it was considered to be the driver of climate change. Can you put this in perspective for us? What drives what and why? Can you give us sure. the essence of this? Whether CO2 drives anything in climate or the weather is completely false. There's no evidence for it. The only evidence is that CO2 levels, on average, if you look over thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years, CO2 levels are driven by world temperatures because the sea temperature controls the rate at which, uh, or the dynamic equilibrium uh, between carbon dioxide in the, sea in the air and carbon dioxide in the sea, which is where most CO2 is, in, in fact. So when the sea is warmer, more CO2 comes off. And when it's cooler, you get uh, the, the sea absorbs um, CO2. Um, um, their ideas about CO2 are just not borne out by uh, evidence, i.e. there's no correlation uh, between CO2 and world temperatures except what I said, namely that on, on uh, when there's big changes in world temperatures, like when you leave an ice age, then CO2 levels go up. And when you go into an ice age, CO2 levels go down, and they go down afterwards or go up afterwards, so they follow temperatures, not dry temperatures. Your question then is, well, what is actually driving climate change and, and weather extremes? Well, our understanding from our long analysis of solar activity, which is charged particles coming from the sun, and their modulation by the moon, is that uh, all the extreme events of any importance can be explained by uh, changes of solar activity and the modulation of the flow of particles from the sun by uh, lunar effects, uh, as well as magnetic connections. Why do you think it is that in climate science, the people that are asserting that there's only global warming and only that whatever this is that we're causing it, why do you think it is that they are totally eradicating the part of climate that has to do with the sun and the moon? Why is that being left out of the whole paradigm? They're not doing it for scientific reasons. They're doing it for political reasons. And, and the whole uh, system is politically driven, uh, both by certain businesses which make large amounts of money out of it, such as oil companies, although they pretend they're on the other side, or rather the warmest pretend oil companies are supporting people like me, which is not the case. Oil companies stand to make trillions out of energy prices going up because the the value of their assets goes up enormously when, when, when people are made to pay more for energy, which is the consequence of the global warmers' policies. So that is one driver of this nonsense, the oil uh, uh, and energy companies. The other driver, of course, is governments who use it as a reason or excuse to pay taxes. And then on the back of that, you've got now a great army of people who are in the green industry, and their only interest is to get, keep people believing in this, this nonsense. So they're like a sort of religious sect, if you, if you like. They, they're just uh, propagating falsity in order to uh, maintain their position. Now, some of them actually believe in this falsity, of course. Because well, I used to be one of them. They're acquainted with reality, but they, they you know, it's, it's a self propagating the delusional sect, which is driving uh, uh, 
uh, well, nonsense at a great cost to humanity. So I used to be one of those people, and what was so stunning is when I rolled up my sleeves and I started to do my own personal due diligence, and yes. it was so stunning to go into every facet of climate, and we ended up doing like 25 segments, and it's unfathomable the atrocity of misinformation. The thing I wanted to ask you is, how is it that NASA can lie so complicitly? Mm. Well, NASA is an extension of, of government and related to all the uh, companies, huge companies, which produce jet engines. So, you know, they've got a... And, uh, and the military, of course. So they're all part of the setup, which uh, is needed to keep people ideologically in, in, in check. So, you know, unfortunately, science is a secondary thing for them. Now, um, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, warned of the uh, military-industrial complex establishing its own interests and taking over uh, objectivity. And, and uh, that, in fact, has, is what has happened. Um, and it's not, in fact, new that this sort of thing has, has happened. I mean, there have been plenty of examples in the past where complete nonsense has been propagated by various... Uh, Regimes, mostly totalitarian regimes, but uh, you know they have propagated things like Stalin propagated nonsense, Hitler propagated nonsense. For some years, the uh, general consensus of uh, top scientists for a decade or so was that the uh, continents didn't move and continental drift was impossible. And yet, you know, it was took a took a decade or so of people arguing about that to reveal that in fact continents do move. Um, fortunately then, for the, there wasn't so many interest groups attached to the idea that they don't, but now we have a huge uh, amount of interest groups attached to the uh, falsity of the CO2 theory. What do you think about the most elite circles of the world that really would like to make sure that Earth is not so populated? I mean, that's some serious business too. How do you think that connects with the policies for climate? Well, a lot of them are the same people because I've been into their, their meetings and raised things which, incidentally, they never report, even though they have a discussion. We had a big meeting in the Royal Society where me and two friends went in and we raised very pertinent questions and they, they listened to give them their due and they gave answers which are complete nonsense and we hoped these would be in the record of the meeting, but funnily enough, there was nothing. Um, but anyway, uh, when they get talking uh, and forget that we were there, they were talking quite explicitly about population control, which I found uh, completely alarming. Um, because you see, uh, you know, you just have to look at the world as it is and think, well, okay, 5,000 years ago, man was relying on... Well, he was a nomad, you know, and he, he couldn't make much of the land, and the world population was limited by the fact he was a nomad. But once he started to farm land, then, of course, world population could increase hugely. Now, right now, in terms of the sea, man is just a nomad. He just pulls fish out and eats them. Um, but the sea could be farmed uh, in many ways. Now, the living space in the sea is 300 times the living space on land. So... Uh, you know, with a new approach, it's quite easy to see that the world population could be easily 300 times what it is now, and if not 3,000 times, because man is probably only using a tenth of the capacity of the of the land anyway. So, so you know, the idea the world is is is, is full is is a nonsense. I mean, the 
the general mass of microbes in the world is, is bigger than mankind and all these artifacts anyway. So, so it's, it's an absurdity, and these people are deluded, and, and they are often connected with the warmers. I don't know if there's any particular reason for that, but it happens to be that they are. I remember speaking to an astrophysicist who passed away a few years ago, but before mm. he passed, he said to me, do you know that you could put all the people in the world in the state of Texas and they oh, could all, all be there? And I said, so what? It's not in Texas, I assure you. You don't need Texas. You can put him on the, on the Isle of Wight if they only have a square meter each. Exactly. Sometimes you talk about things, and unless you have a visual analogy, you don't really know what you're comparing to. No, that's not. Well, people live in cities. Half half the world lives in cities, so they sort of imagine the world is a city. Well, actually, if you're in space, you can see it's not. Roads are just lines on the maps, and cities are, are blobs, little blobs in these vast, vast, vast areas of uh, well, unused land, which could be used in many, many ways. I want to talk about your biggest concerns as an astrophysicist, given that you are watching very carefully the solar action, and the lunar dynamics. I want you to share your greatest concerns. Well, there's uh, extreme weather events, which we predicted a year ago. We said, or more than a year ago, we said we're going to go through a period of very extreme weather events due to uh, uh, what we call locking of the jet stream. The jet stream kind of gets stuck in places, which means you get repeating very hot weather or very cold weather in places, and this happened in... America, both in the winter, where we predicted um, all those major blizzards, and these great blasts of very hot air, which we also predicted in, in this, this summer. Now, this tendency will carry on for a year or two, um, and it is worrying because it's going to cause cause death and so on, unless the governments of the world listen, which they don't want to. Um, but this tendency will will die out after a couple of years, and then we'll be in a more uh, a less strained situation. And then after that, we'll have another about 60 years later. There will be a tendency towards these extremes again. But before that, we're likely to get to a, a, a very cold, generally very cold period, which I mentioned about. Uh, 2035 or so, and that will be a serious problem because there will be, uh, you know, crop failures, hunger, uh, and so forth, unless the wit of man is brought to bear on these these situations. Now, you see, the capacity is there to solve all, all current food problems, but the political uh, climate is often not there. I mean, like the famine in the Horn of Africa, it was known years ago it was about to happen. Well, it's now happening and people are dying. Now, you know, a lot of people in the UN or whatever don't want that, of course, but they're, they're, they're hamstrung by various uh, political uh, uh, problems which uh, were perhaps insurmountable. But you see, uh, in that case, man is the uh, origin of, of the problems. I mean, the, the, the climate problem, if you like, or the weather problem of these extremes was foreseeable but not dealt with and in the longer run um, we're talking about hundreds or possibly a thousand or so years uh, there will be uh, an ice age proper in which case the uh, Canadians and the Russians will come because they'll be frozen out talk about that you could have giant greenhouses built on top of ice, and it's all possible, I dare say, and perhaps that's what will happen in uh, 
500 or so years' time. Uh, no, I'm just saying that figure. We don't know because we haven't done enough work to predict the next ice age. But we do have a kind of handle on how often they they come or how often the warm periods come and go, which is to do with the uh, the um, tilt of the Earth, how it changes every 43,000 years a cycle of that or thereabouts, 42,000 years maybe. And the uh, rotation of the lun- of the poles of the Earth, which has uh, got a period of about nineteen thousand years, so one hundred and thirty thousand years ago or thereabouts, they were in a similar position together as they are now. So, uh, and that's when the last uh, interglacial warm period was. These overlapped, if you like. It's a very noisy system, so you can't flip it, um, you know, very simply. There was a gentleman that I interviewed back in 2004 named Dr. Bonley, and his area is in magnetism. And one of the things that he said, he's coming back on next week, he said that the Earth is losing 5% of its magnetic field every 100 years, and that this is actually having an impact on our well-being on many, many systems of the Earth. Do you Mm -hmm. think that's possible? Uh, Yes, it is possible, definitely possible. You see, this could be related to, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other things which change the temperature, but uh, generally speaking, the more particles, charged particles collected by Earth, the warmer it is. Um, And with a weaker magnetic field, the um, Earth can only capture less particles from the sun because its magnetic cross-section, as you call it, is is reduced. So that would be part of a a, a cooling trend. Um, I I think the problem with those figures is I don't know how reliable this 5% a century is, but, you know, I mean, most people involved appear to be saying it is declining. Anyway, that's, that's for sure. Do you think that we will experience a reversal of the poles in our lifetime, Pierce? No, no, no. Those those things happen rarely, but they do happen. That that is true. It's very interesting what they do, and that appears to be to do with the internal dynamics of the uh, of the Earth. Um, so you know there are complications on just using the sun and the moon to predict the, the slow changes of uh, of uh, um, ice ages. But there is it's very clear that those are the fundamental things, and the uh, what happens internally is uh, largely secondary, but um, it is important as well. I know that there's a distinction between the Gulf Stream and the Jet Stream, and I want you to explain the distinction for the right, average person. Yes. They're very the distinct. Gulf Stream, the Gulf Stream is the um, uh, current in the sea, which goes basically from around the Caribbean up to uh, Norway. Um, or thereabouts, or certainly bays in the British Isles, and that is a warm, generally speaking, current, and it maintains Britain has been, uh, on average, uh, uh, warmer than other countries of similar latitudes. Um, and the jet stream does shift um, going further north sometimes, or not further north other times, and during what was called the Maunda Minimum, for example, of low solar activity and very cold uh, weather in the Northern Hemisphere, 
the jet stream, in, sorry, not the jet stream, I'm getting mad on myself, the Gulf Stream went further south and basically warmed up Spain rather than Britain. Um, and the reason for that are probably something to do with the Earth's rotation rate and some connections with the sun. But leaving that aside, that was the, you know, that is what the Gulf Stream does. Now, the jet stream is just the general track of low-pressure systems as they cross America or the Atlantic or Europe. And when you see on the map, you see these, they put these arrows, that's where basically the low-pressure systems go. And roughly speaking, it's where warmer air from the south is meeting colder air from the north. Now, the shape of the jet stream, i.e. The, it's a wavy thing that goes round and round the Earth. Now, sometimes it gets stuck in places. It has a sort of more or less fixed pattern. That's not very often. Mostly, it's slowly moving all the time. So you get uh, low pressures come and go, and uh, you get higher, warmer bits, colder bits, and, and so on. Um, and the changes in the jet stream, uh, long-term changes are fundamental to climate change, and the short-term changes are fundamental to weather extremes. And the key thing that we do is essentially predict um, shifts in the jet stream for many months ahead due to what we estimate solar activity and the, magnet and the magnetic effects of the sun and the earth and the modulation by the moon are going to do. A lot of people have been turning to you because of your predictions, even with floods. And I heard you speaking in an interview about the lunar cycle and the solar eclipses and their relationship to floods. And I'd like you to explain that to the audience. I thought that was fascinating. Yes. Well, there are three types of uh, jet stream sort of things in the world. One is the northern hemisphere jet stream. One is the southern hemisphere jet stream. And then there's a related sort of thing in the tropics called the uh, intertropical convergence zone, which isn't quite the same, but it, it does have patterns in it. Now... Uh, what uh, we noticed is that you will get floods in Australia, for example, when you have the um, uh, La Nina operating, i.e. it's cold in the um, uh, East Pacific, um, and you have lunar eclipses or solar eclipses in a certain pattern, especially because the solar eclipses change through from year to year when they happen. Um, and they go around with a roughly a 19-year cycle. Um, so this year, or rather, yeah, this year, we had solar eclipses, uh, a solar eclipse on the 4th of January and also a strong La Nina. And that gave us those floods. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't mean it's exact cause and effect, but that is a signal for those floods. And it may well be we'll have a similar enough pattern next year for more floods in in Australia. And these patterns, you can look at uh, when there was high, uh, high, more La Nina, and these particular lunar phases, and you can see you see the patterns. So. You, you need basically multiples of 19 years going backwards, and you'll find these the, these floods, providing there was also um, a La Nina, or you get it in the year there was, and not the year where there was an El Nino. Um, so it means the uh, Australian floods are essentially 
understandable and uh, to a an extent, uh, a large extent, predictable. And the idea that they're driven by mankind is complete, utter nonsense with no evidence for that whatsoever. I never heard that floods were driven by mankind. Really? Yeah, well, the Australian government was saying that. But they, they went even went as far as cancelling some projects to build dams because the global warmers had told them there wasn't going to be any more floods. We were just going to have drought in sort. Yeah, you know what happened. A number of people were drowned as a consequence. I have a question for you that has come up recently, and I've seen it written in a lot of papers and magazines. A lot of people are saying that the reason it's colder is because of global warming. <laughs> and I don't understand that at all. That's like saying something's black because it's white. It's so cuckoo. What is that line of thinking about? It is It is cuckoo, yes. Um, but the line of thinking is that um, the CO2 has somehow changed the circulation pattern of the world, i.e. the jet stream, okay, and... Uh, in this instance, that has caused um, these cold blasts in North America. Um, so it's really all caused by CO2, and on average, uh, CO2, more CO2 will make the world warmer because it's a greenhouse gas. Now, we know that is factually nonsense, that it is. more CO2 does not make the world warmer. It's the warmth which drives the CO2 levels. But, you see, they have that belief, so therefore they say, oh, yes, well, all this global warming process, in fact, is also causing the cold. Well, it's a convenient argument because it means that everything they care to mention could be controlled by CO2. Their problem is, of course, they can predict absolutely nothing whereas we can predict things using solar activity, which is why they never want to publicize our forecasts. The New York Times, for example, steadfastly ignores everything we say. I mean, we warn them, and we even sent a Twitter to President Obama's Twitter Twitter group, if you know he's got one, uh, with large numbers of followers, and um, told him about these big blizzards that were going to happen in America, in New York area, the whole of well, the East Coast, just after Christmas. You remember Boxing Day? The big freeze-up of the airports. Well, we predicted all that, but the New York Times carried articles, and, and the New York Times had received our stuff, saying it was all down to CO2. So really, they're more interested in peddling lies than they are in saving lives, because they could have helped save lives by publicizing our warnings. Let's take, for example, farmers. I would imagine that even if civilians that are not open to really getting into the science of what you're talking about and looking at a whole systems perspective, which to me is what you're doing, yeah. At the very least in agriculture, people that have the most amount to lose, right? They do, yeah. Okay, in yeah. business. Well, of course, a lot of farmers, they're brainwashed too, you know, they just believe it can't be done, you know, and it's often word of mouth. One farmer that uses our forecast convinces another, um, but otherwise most farmers think that weather forecasts are, are free and wrong, so, you know, that we pop up saying we can do it. They have a belief difficulty unless they can actually watch it. Um, and in America, well, it's the same as well, but we do have a number of farmers and individuals in America who are getting our forecasts on weatheraction.com and um, uh, making good use of them. Uh, I mean, and we're hoping to increase, the, we are increasing the detail of American forecasts to, to help help more. I mean, currently they're somewhat general about 
well, they are specific, but they're broadish brush about uh, extremes in different parts of, of America. Uh, but we will be able to get to the definition that we have in England in, in, in due course. Do you have any concern, because you do live in England, about it getting too cold and extreme weather events there? Uh, yes, but really, that's chicken feed compared to what you have in America. I mean, the, we had the coldest uh, December for 100 years, um, and it was, you know, serious stuff, but... But all the same, you know, it's like six inches of snow. Well, <laughs> people in Canada, six inches of snow is just, well, just a silly thing to worry about, isn't it? So <laughs> it depends who you are and where you are, but it was very serious for the British economy, which in it cost it billions because, of course, the uh, British economy is totally unprepared for such things, especially because the Met Office had been once again saying uh, uh, a mild winter because all their models inevitably say mild winter. It was a very interesting lesson to learn that there's empirical data and then there's the computer yes. simulations and that when a person goes to verify what's true, the first thing you have to ask is, where did the data come from? Did it come from computer models or didn't it? If you're not exposed to these distinctions, it's all gobbledygook. You don't know where yes. anything is coming from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the Met Office model, you see, relied on back-testing using University of East Anglia uh, so-called measured data. Well, we now know that that data from the University of East Anglia is fraudulent, i.e. It's, it's overwarm. So uh, it's, it's inevitable that the Met Office sticks this into any model and they're going to come out with too much mild weather. Uh, and they're in fact doomed to carry on with this as long as they're wedded to uh, global warmers nonsense and the fraudulent data they, they produce. And, you know, we're in a tragic anti-scientific uh, situation where financial and political interests uh, are overruling objectives of science, and it's, uh, it's a hard job to overcome this. Why do you think that climatologists and people in general are not more receptive to the fact that climate and weather is impacted by the sun and the moon and the magnetic fields and the activities going on mm. with all of it? Well, I suppose it's just brainwashing. I mean, you know, it's, but I do find it staggering that in school children are taught to be objective and measure things. And as soon as they leave school, they're told to stop believing in objectivity and measurement and believe in delusional nonsense uh, based on climate models that, and weather models that patently fail, fail, and fail again. Um, so, I don't know, but uh, I mean, when I go to meetings, I always make a point of you know, speaking to students and younger people if I possibly can, because generally they are more open than those who have got uh, some interest in continuing to receive a salary in, in order to... Uh, you know, as a spot of propagating nonsense. When pictures are being shown of glaciers melting, <laughs> what yeah. is that? Well, it's the, well, first of all, a glacier is not a thermometer. A glacier is its length it is because of the combination of things, one of which is the amount of snow falling there. And, you know, Mount Fuji was often cited as, look, look here, look at it. There's a... There's, there's no snow there, therefore it's warmer. But measurements showed that actually it wasn't warmer in the area. 
there'd been less snow for some circulation pattern reason. So, you know, um, glaciers are not thermometers, and there are some who are shrinking and some who are not shrinking. Um, and statistically, both is happening around the world. Um, and the the rate of uh, where at which some glaciers are shrinking hasn't changed for hundreds of years, and the rate at which some have been doing the opposite hasn't changed either, or not significantly. So there isn't anything honest one can deduce from from glaciers. You see, it's curious, isn't it? They talk about global warming. Well, why not actually measure temperatures? And then we find, well, they were measuring temperatures, but since 1990, they've removed 62% of the measuring stations. Why? 62%. Why? Well, they say they've got better ones. They've chosen better ones. Well, of course, we know that uh, it's rather odd, but the the uh, the removal of stations coincides with an increased uh, world temperature, and we've got this stuff in a lot of data. Like Joe Dalio, for example, researched... And, and the less stations, the higher the average temperatures. It's just a nonsense. They've just been selecting out um, uh, stations which were showing falling temperatures and keeping in stations which were showing rising temperatures for whatever reason. And one of the reasons is probably that they, uh, uh, well, plants growing in, in the area where the minimum temperatures are measured so that the minimum temperatures go up when they don't trim back the plants. So the periods of years and these uh, world average temperatures where they show a warming generally show a warming in the minimum average as opposed to the maximum so uh, you know the thing is is basically fiddled data now you used to do a lot of your predictions based on the activity of the sun and then you brought in the lunar aspect to this as well what made you notice that the moon had a piece in this as well well, I've known of, of lunar signals in a lot of uh, flood data, for example, especially Chinese data where it shows the 18.6 or the 19-year signal. So we knew it was important, but we didn't really understand why. Uh, and we just tried a lot of things about the uh, moon's orbit, the plane of the moon's orbit, and and, and, and so forth and found some sort of rules and uh, just were careful to look in the past when uh, under these rules you have the same state of the moon or a similar state of the moon and the sun magnetic connections in the past as sometime in, 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 in the future. So then we use that weather data in the past to predict uh, what's likely to happen in, in, in the future. Um, uh, for example, you can get a, a kind of semi-repeating pattern at roughly every 132 years, which is um, uh, six times 22 or about seven times 19, I think you'll find. Um, seven nines, uh, yes, right, that's 133, you see, and six times 22 is 132. So roughly 132 years ago or, or so, you'll find that we're similar sets of weather extremes as to now, for, for example, around that time there was these big heat waves in Russia and there were floods in Pakistan like there were last year, you see. Now, it doesn't mean it's clockwork because there's a lot of other difficulties, but um, there was a series of floody summers in England uh, 
132 years ago, a bit like the ones we had at 2007, 2008, and 2009. I know that you're looking at the past and cycles in the past to do the prediction into the future, but also you're looking at patterns, at what relates to what, and what are the patterns of the moon, and what are the patterns of the solar activity, and how they are patterned together and dynamically relating yes, to yes. each other. Yes, it's a lot more than just thinking like a hundred Right, years. you're not just looking into the past and doing a replay. No, no, we, we have actual predictions of there's going to be a big event on the sun or not a big event on the sun, and if the timing of it is right and the particles are going to be pointing to Earth, then we can say, you know, that is going to be extra important. And so we, we certainly know we can't we can't just go straight back in the past and find something identical you know, because uh, the order at which events occur is different as, as well. We, we use it as a sort of a guide. I know that from reading military documents, there are patents on controlling weather, on using microwave into weather, on blowing holes in the ionosphere. I know that radioactivity, microwave activity have some kind of relationship to altering weather. We know that Raytheon owns Nikola Tesla's patents on weather engineering, so we know it's happening. It's not a question of is it happening, it's a question of how much it's happening, and it's happening all over the world. So there's a parallel series of activity, if you will, that has to do with synthetic weathering that's also concurrently going on. And I know that's not where you focus. What you're doing is the bulk of organic climate and weather in a whole systems context, including the solar and lunar activity and relationships to each other in the Earth. I get that. And that's Mm. in and of itself quite marvelous that you're able to get such a high level of prediction. Yet, at some point, I hope that this parallel thing going on can also become available to the public at the level at which your knowledge is becoming available Mm. to the public because there are parallel things going on One is organic, the other one is synthetic, but I wanted to just be on record with you saying that I know it exists, I see it every day in Los Angeles, and that's a separate thing, but maybe at some point in our lifetimes, we will be able to put the whole thing together, and maybe that's the other 10%, and maybe 5% is an X factor, 5% keeps us humble, but maybe another 10% is going to be the real stuff that the military-industrial complex is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? Well, I mean, there's two things to say about the weather control or synthetic weather. One is, if it's that good, or if that can be done, why don't they use it in Somalia? Because there are clouds there. You could at least make some of them rain, or maybe there's not enough rain, but you could do something. Um, you know, there's an example, so why isn't that done? If, in fact, there is a population agenda, I would imagine they wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. People should die, yeah. Okay, the other thing is people have often said, oh, yeah, big extreme event, this is being controlled by, uh, you know, these these um, these uh, radiation machines that are sending out microwaves. Well, uh, there could be something going on. In fact, there is something going on, I'm sure. But the problem I have with that argument is that we predict a lot of very extreme events, such as, for example, the tornado swarm, which hit uh, Joplin. We predicted very explicitly in that time of that month, and we didn't say any other time of that month, um, there would be a tornado swarm. Now, people have said, oh, yeah, this was triggered by whatever. Well, you see, 
in order to do that, then it means these people triggering would have to be reading our forecasts and then triggering it at the same time to oblige us. Now, I, I don't think they're doing that. So I think these events are essentially natural. But there may be things which can be modified. It's not so much that I wanted to divert the focus of our conversation. I just wanted to say to you, look, mm. 85% is so good to be able to get that level of predictiveness. I just wanted to say that the militarization of weather, weather alteration, and the impingement on other systems that we all rely on and depend on all over the world even as it's happening, there's nothing we can do about it because we can't control that other realm of activity that's going on. But we can prepare for what we do know is within the realm of prediction. And so that's why I think it's great to focus on what you're doing. But I just wanted to say to you that I know because I see a part of it going on and people I know all over the country and outside see a part of it going on. Even the air is sprayed here every day. And I'm not talking planes just going from point A to point B. I mean an actual spraying program. Of course, it completely contradicts everything these so-called green people say about exactly. pollution. That's a military project. This is way bigger than anything and any movement mm-hmm. can talk mm-hmm. about, but... It's disturbing because they've collected a lot of metal, aluminum, barium, strontium from the ground, and there's some horrible stuff being sprayed. Yes, it's harmful to health, surely it must be. Barium must be harmful to health. Terrible. But that's a whole other thing. There's nothing we can do about that. But I did want to ask you about your past. My understanding is that when you began this, and I know you began as a physicist as a very young person, you were also at a certain time in your life either betting or investing on what your predictions <laughs> yeah, were going to be. But I would imagine now with the discipline of bringing in the lunar and the solar dynamics and the magnetic piece of that, that even if privately you did some small amount of investing would be very interesting. Well, that's right. Well, the, the betting organization that was doing it in England won't, won't take bets off me anymore, and, and there's, there are also public bets like Snow at Christmas or something which they've announced. Um, so they ended that relationship. But uh, what happens now is that the, a number of organizations, as well as I can make out, are doing bigger bets. Like they're taking our, uh, for example, tropical storms forecasts uh, for America, uh, or Atlantic rather, and then... Uh, uh, presumably investing in futures or something or other or insurance underwriting uh, in order to, um, if you like, uh, well, they're gambling, they're doing financial gambling on a larger scale. One of the things that disturbs me personally about some of the betting, not all the betting, mm-hmm. but some of the betting is how the financial investing side mm-hmm. can somehow enter into and influence this other side and work at cross purposes to it, like betting on companies' losses, betting on losses, shorting the market. I'm just telling you my bias. It's an interesting dilemma on both sides. Well, there ought to be more control of these things, but how, uh, well, then you get into a political realm if you're talking about controlling these things. But but you're right. I mean, the, the way this these markets operate does cause well they're essentially unstable and they cause these huge fluctuations which resulted in the you know the financial crash we've had and possibly is another one around the corner 
Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about some of the things that you're learning, things that you're paying attention to now? In the science, we've been doing some trials on earthquakes, and they are just trials, and we don't know where the earthquakes are going to be. But they have been very successful at predicting uh, periods of high, more extreme earthquake or volcanic risk. And, and if people go on weatheraction.com or follow me on peers underscore Corbyn on Twitter, C-O-R-B-Y-N, then you'll find out more about, uh, about that stuff. Um, and uh, we're sort of concluding that, uh, well, some of these periods of earthquakes also coincide with more tornadoes, but not all of them. So by studying the earthquakes and the tornadoes, we've actually, especially in America, we've actually, uh, we think, learned something where we can, you know, be a bit more reliable about both, predicting both. Um, that's basically the thing we're at it in, in, in um in the theory of what we're up to. Um, in practical terms, I've, I've mentioned in places that in the long run, it must be possible to unite solar lunar action technique and standard meteorology so that the it would modify the equations of standard meteorology, but the consequence could be you could have detailed forecasts like a day ahead, but they could be done 10 days ahead instead. Now, I, I think that is is is, is possible or even half a day ahead accuracy achieved 10 days ahead. Um, so that's the main thing I would say about the science and prospects for the future, potential prospects. Um, the other thing is, though, the sort of general political problem, that is that we have a scientific so-called community and a political elite, which are they pretend they're accountable, but they're not accountable. And, you know, we have to have objective, evidence-based science and get rid of this ideological nonsense imposed upon us. And science, scientists and uh, politicians and policies all have to be accountable in, in some public way instead of them getting away with uh, monstrosities as now. Don't you think your predictions being such a high degree of accuracy is showing that a lot of the ideology is completely off? Yes, it does. And when people see them, they do. I mean, I've, I've, I've been contacted with quite a lot of people who say, Mr. Corbyn, I, I followed your forecast and I'm convinced. I'm now convinced that all these global warmers are talking tosh. And I'm not going to, uh, if I can avoid paying any of their stupid taxes, I will do, you know. And I think people have to be more uh, reactive or whatever the word is on this. And, you know, when you see these things like uh, spend more here, save the planet, reduce your CO2, you should go in the shop and say, no, I'm not going to do that. And, in fact, encourage people not to go for anything which is supposedly, uh, you know, there to reduce CO2. I mean, if you want to recycle, then you do so, but uh, not these silly tricks and like wind farms, which are just prayer wheels, which uh, we pay for and, uh, and achieve nothing. What do you think about what's happening with the nuclear power plants in Japan and the radiation levels that have gone to different places in the earth? What's your feeling about it and what's your take on it? Well, I think it's very worrying. The, the, 
I mean, it's obvious those plants, as they are, are not safe against a number of things. And the trouble is all industry will... Well, they're always going to say they're safer than... Well, there's going to be unknown things which happen. And in this case, it was a bigger tsunami than they imagined would happen. Although historically, you only have to look in history in Japan. It's very interesting that the coast of Japan, if you go to the old villages, they have stones, you know, big plaques stuck in the ground saying do not build any houses below this level because there could be you know whatever they call it a sea flood or a tsunami now the places which have obeyed, obeyed these signs uh, haven't didn't get hit by the last tsunami and those who just uh, you know went down down land towards the sea uh, uh, got destroyed so the, the knowledge is there. Um, but anyway, the point about nuclear power is that uh, I, I think it's, it has severe problems quite apart from tsunamis. That is, the uh, even if waste can apparently be disposed of, there's, there's uh, the problem of storage of waste. And if you've got a lot of nuclear nukes around, then and if you have a war, you can be sure that the nukes will get destroyed and there will be big... Uh, leakages you know so i i think it's it's a uh, dangerous stuff and i prefer to use uh well water power tidal power coal oil um uh, and so forth this is just a philosophical question do you think we'll ever get to the point where nuclear power plants that already exist can be secured i don't know i, re- I really don't know i, I mean it's uh well, you see, an individual plant, you can say it's safe, but you see, safe against what? I mean, suppose you had Israel and Iran with big nuclear um, civil programs for the sake of argument. Then, you know, if it was a war between the two of them, I think it's pretty clear they would bomb each other's nuclear facility, nuclear stations and the, the radioactive waste, even if they didn't destroy the plant itself, the radioactive waste would get blown around, you know, and, and the other thing is, of course, the more nukes around, the more waste there is, and that can be disposed on a a black market. I mean, you know, if you have failed states in any any continent which have got a nuclear program because some green person has said they should use nuclear, then, well, I think you're pretty sure the plutonium will eventually get sold to somebody and you'll end up with, uh, you know, well, I don't know about handheld nuclear weapons, but you, you know what I mean. There could be all sorts of technological developments with, uh, you know, local nuclear explosions by terrorists or whatever, which I, I don't like the idea at all. You know, I've never heard of anybody in the Green Movement ever being for nuclear. In fact, I would say most of the people... Well, I, some of them are in England. Yeah. Oh, Friends of the Earth in England. Yeah. Really? It's pro-nuclear because they say it's it's less dangerous than... Than CO2. I mean, you, you know, it's madness, but that is what they say. Wow. Yeah, I agree. Within the Green Movement, there's all sorts of views, but there sure. is uh, uh, some of those people, a lot of them, a significant number in Britain, have changed their lives and they support nukes. How do you like living in England? Um, well, I like living in England, yes. <laughs> because it's not too, uh, not too warm and not too cold. Mind you, the weather is relatively boring compared with America, though. <laughs> Well, listen, I really want to thank you for joining us and coming on the show. And it's such a pleasure to have you and to hear from you. And I really want the audience to listen very carefully to what you've been sharing. Thank you very much. 
ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Pierce Corbin, the founder of Weather Action at weatheraction.com. And you should go to his site and order his forecast, read it. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you.